White, Gabriella Ransquext, ne Victoria Remumtwin. Hello and welcome. My name is Gabriella, and I'm recording this podcast at the University of Victoria, seated on the Lekwungen people's traditional territory. I want to take a moment to acknowledge with respect the Lekwungen peoples, the Songhees, Esquimalt, and Wasanich peoples, whose historical relationships with the land continue to this day. If you have the honor to walk in these beautiful lands, take time each day to connect with the earth and the moss, to listen with your heart and your spirit to the presence of the sacred cedar trees that have provided for and protected the Lekwungen, Songhees, Esquimalt, and Wasanich peoples in these lands for thousands of years. Connect with the earth and allow the earth to connect with you. Welcome to this episode of Stare Indecises, where we take some time to connect with the current interim dean, Val Napoleon. Dean Napoleon is one of the incredible people responsible for the creation of the Joint Indigenous Law Degree Program here at the University of Victoria, which we lovingly refer to as the JDJID program. This program is the first of its kind, not only in Canada, but in the world. Dean Napoleon also established the Indigenous Law Research Unit, creating partnerships with Indigenous communities and groups in BC, across Canada, and even internationally. Some of her areas of expertise include Indigenous legal traditions, Indigenous feminist legal studies, governance, restorative justice, Indigenous property law, and Aboriginal legal issues. Dean Val teaches here at the University of Victoria and has acted as the director of the JDJID program and Law Foundation Chair of Indigenous Justice and Governance, and she has impacted the lives and hearts of students here at the University of Victoria for years. All of the information on the JDJID program and the Indigenous Law Research Unit are available online at uvic.ca. Many people have met with or heard of Val and have learned about some of her incredible accomplishments. In this episode of Stare Indecises, we wanted to take the time to connect with Val on a personal, more intimate level. We hope you enjoy. Would you like to introduce yourself? Sure. So I'm Val Napoleon. I'm the acting dean for the Faculty of Law here in Victoria. And I'm from Soto First Nation. I'm Cree. And um, I am an adopted member of the House of Lujan, which is a northern Gixan house uh, out of Gitniao, part of the the larger uh, Gixan society. And um, I teach and in the uh, Indigenous Law Degree program that we have here. I teach Gixan Law alongside Canadian Law. That's perfect. That's a great place to start. So we have a few rapid-fire questions. We've set up the interview in three sections. The first section is rapid-fire, and just to get a, like a quick responses that are showing us a little bit more about who you are. And then the second section is more about your journey. And the third are student questions. So let's get to it. Are you ready? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> okay. If you could choose to have one superpower, 
what would it be? Can I tell you what my superpower is now? Oh, please. Well, I always choose the slowest lineup in any store or any other kind of situation. So that's my current superpower. (laughs) According to my grandson, my superpower, and the only one I have, is super hearing. Mm -hmm. Um, But if I could have any, um, probably not sleep. That's a good one. Michelangelo, right? (laughs) Okay, how many kids do you have? Two. And how many grandkids do you have? Four. What's your favorite thing to do with your grandkids? Oh, it depends on their ages. So I've loved tromping all over in the bush looking for signs of Sasquatches with one of my grandsons. Uh, He's a really creative one, so we sew together. Uh, We do all kinds of things together. Um, The little one loves music, and we listen to music together. So there, there are many favorite things. It depends on what age they are. Oh. Awesome. Okay, how many siblings do you have? It depends on whether you're looking at my mother. And with my mother, we share, there's eight of us that share our mother. Seriously, uh, with my father, it's like about 250. He was a scallywag. Oh. <laughs> Such a good word. Underused, I think. <laughs> well, he, um, yeah, he was busy uh, across northern BC and Alberta. <laughs> and so we could fill a community hall, actually. Okay. <laughs> Standing room only. What is the tastiest thing you've ever eaten? Oh, again, these are all contextual questions. So uh, dried moose meat. Mm. Uh, right up there but if you also like have the freshest scallops Mm. oh they're beautiful or um, oolican grease or seal grease these are all they're all different kinds of tastes that tastes of the world they come from Mm. beautiful coffee or tea Sadly, I'm down to one measly cup of half and half coffee in the morning. (laughs) It's a really sad affair. And then sometimes I will have a cup of tea just to really liven my life up. But it's pretty pathetic. (laughs) Why the reduction? Is it a reduction? It's a reduction. Yeah, it's about just trying to take more measures to be healthy. Too much coffee can be a problem. How much cream? None. Oh, sugar? No. Okay. <laughs> Do you have any pets? Not right now, and I miss having uh, miss having them. Right now, because of the lack of pets in my life, I think I feed the birds, mm. and then I enjoy, um, I, I have a bird bath, and I enjoy all of the little shenanigans that they get up to. <laughs> have you named any of them? No. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, what is your favorite emoji? Good heavens. <laughs> um, <clears throat> well, the one I probably use the most is a little bouquet of flowers. They, they seem to fit most, a lot of different situations. If COVID and money were not an issue, where would you like to travel to? Oh, man. Um, 
I'd love to go to Zambia uh, and visit a friend there. She's working in the law school there. Uh, she's the dean. That's one place. Um, I'd love to go to the the islands just off Alaska and just spend enough time to be able to explore those islands. Um, I, I want to go to Peru, um, visit friends there. Um, yeah, there's lots of places where there's good people. Beautiful. What's your favorite ice cream flavor? Coffee. Mm. <laughs> Do you fish or hunt? Um, not for a long time. <laughs> um, no, I'm, I'm, I've become a real rural Indian. So, yeah, I, I used to fish. I have hunted. The, my sister's the real hunter in, in our family. Um, she was way better at it than me. How do you feel about airplanes? It's mixed. So on the one hand, there's all of the pollution, and that's concerning. Um, there's also something unsettling. If you really think about it, there's something unsettling about being in a large metal container hurtling through the sky. One of the places it bothered me the most was flying over the Sahara Desert, mm. and it was really hot, and you could feel the heat of the desert, you know, however many thousands of feet we were up in the air, and I thought, this is just insane. <laughs> <laughs> What's your favorite board game? Board game? Mm -hmm. Oh, my God. Um, well, the one that really gets the emotions going <laughs> is um, Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> you can really whack the table over that one. <laughs> That is a good table laughing. <laughs> what is your best and worst dish to cook? I have made the worst pie crust in the world. <laughs> I, um, yeah, I, I still blush thinking about how, the terrible. Anyway, um, <laughs> so the best, oh, I don't know, I, I experiment. Um, and sometimes it just doesn't work out. Like that pie crust was supposed to be this beautiful French something or other, and it was just a big flop. Um, so sometimes, sometimes I make really good, uh, like Singapore beef for those kinds of dishes, mm. or um, I bake bread. I sometimes that is fantastic. Um, I really like making things like plum cakes, fruit and mm. cake. So, yeah, it depends. Yummy. Okay, and the last question for the rapid fires. What is your best self-care activity? My sister and I crank up the rock and roll music, and we dance like crazy all over the house. Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Do you watch Grey's Anatomy at all? No. <laughs> oh, that's a good one. They do a lot of that on there. Oh, okay. Okay, and so now we have some Google top fives. Okay. So what I did was I typed the beginning of a question into Google and the top five responses that auto-populated on that drop-down list are what we've gone with. So what is your, is the first top five, what is your love language? My love language... 
Well, um, I, I think uh, I think of love language insofar as my grandsons, and it's it's you know my mom used to call us you know my girl my boy, and so using those kinds of endearments like to know that there's like in the way that we greet them that there's a connection. That's beautiful. Okay, what is your greatest weakness? Oh, God. <laughs> Pie crust? <laughs> um, you know, I don't always... I'm not as thoughtful as I could be in difficult conversations. Hmm. And what I... Uh, the weakness is that I don't think about it until after the conversation is end. Like, so that, you know, what I would prefer to be able to do is to, to be much more conscious in the conversation about what I'm saying and what I'm hearing. So, so I would say that would be something I, I continue, I struggle to work on. Thank you. Okay, what is your zodiac sign? Aries. What is your, the question is spirit animal, but I kind of want to say more like, what is your um, animal counterpart? Or if you were an animal, what would it be? So that grizzly bear up on the wall there was given to me by one of the communities that my family is from, and that's a charging grizzly mother. Gorgeous. What is your greatest strength? Um, I don't give up easily. I see that in your eyes. That's beautiful. Okay. The next set of five is what is your favorite? What is your favorite color? Oh, I was afraid you were going to ask me that. <laughs> <laughs> I love them all. <laughs> I'm um, again. It depends. You know, there's there's sometimes when the sky is just a perfect indigo, or when the moon is a perfect orange. Uh, when you look at a friend and you suddenly realize that her eyes look like the ocean, you know they're all there's. It's it's in the moment. Beautiful. What is your favorite song lyric? <laughs> this is this is funny. My dad used to love this song, and it, it was "Heaven's Just a Sin Away." <laughs> <laughs> it always makes me laugh. That's a good one. I'm gonna have to look that up. Um, what is your favorite animal? Hmm. Oh dear. Let me think. Um. You know, I. Uh, have been paying attention to the raccoons in my neighborhood and have come to quite admire their ingenuity and um, the way that they use the top of fences as their highway, for instance, the way that they, uh, I see their little paw prints when we have snow, uh, you know, tromping around the neighborhood. Yeah, I, I think right now it's probably raccoons. Cool. And the last one for this set, what is your favorite question? Mm. What are you curious about? Mm. 
Okay. Last set of five, and then we'll move on to section three. Who do you most is the Google top five. Who do you most admire? Hmm. <laughs> um, goodness sakes, there, there are so many people. I have two sisters who right now are struggling with really severe health conditions. And I have to say that right, you know, when I look at them and I, and I know what they're dealing with and I see the perseverance with which they take care of grandchildren, with the way they engage in the world and they keep themselves busy and they walk whenever they can, I think the two of them right now are people that I really admire. Mm. Who do you most enjoy buying gifts for? <laughs> uh, both my little grandsons. Um, books. I buy books primarily, but other things too. You know, magnifying glasses or um, fabric because one of them is very uh, tactile and and so he loves the, the, the touch of things. Yeah, that, those kinds of things. Who do you most look up to and why? You know, we, we have the privilege of having great thinkers and courageous people like Murray Sinclair, you know, who are out there in the public um, just continuing to forge ahead taking on massive tasks. Uh, so, you know, I'd have to say Marie Sinclair. Um, there are, uh, you know, you know, Tony Mandaman, who was one of the first Indigenous peoples to go to law school, and then, you know, he was on the, the trial court. Um, those people who uh, didn't have hardly anybody else in in the field that they were working and they they forged ahead with just supreme courage and so I mean there are I think too many people to name but I I look at those you know yesterday you know I'm right now I think the only indigenous dean in Canada I got to introduce the first black dean of Ryerson, of, of the law school at Ryerson. And, um, and then the first black dean of uh, UBC Law came in, Nagai Pinder. And, you know, part of the activity for this, uh, for the Black uh, Professional Leadership Program, you know, it was the whole launch. You know, one of the people that they invited and who participated was Selwyn Romilly, the first black judge. So I, I look at all of these people and I think this is just incredible that, um, you know, that they are who they are, they've done what they've done, and they take the time to hold each other up and to hold up students and to make time for students. You know, I, I just, I'm blown away by all these people. Beautiful. Who do you most want to help? 
You know, one of the things that I um, that I hope for is that all of us as indigenous peoples, that all of us as uh, peoples, that we're um, that we learn and are able to help ourselves in ways that in in ways that we uh, draw strength from our past and from each other. That we that we see that we're able to do that. That our helping of ourselves is a way of helping each other. That it's a relational act. So not one person, but all of us. That makes good sense. Okay, and one more. Who do you most like to play with? Oh, I have, I have to say my, my uh, grandsons. Because you have to be in the moment with them, and they make me laugh. They are funny, smart little people, and I, yeah, I have a lot of fun with them. Okay, moving on to section two, we are going to start discussing journey questions. So the first journey question, why law? So I uh, didn't go to law school until I became a grandmother. I think you've heard me say this before. And law was uh, a field that was accessible to me as an older uh, as an older woman as a woman who I, you know um, who I didn't have um, an academic background I didn't come from an academic family um, but you could write the LSAT as long as you had some academic you know a couple of years of, of university and so it was a way in um, and it's also you know my observation was that, it was something that would allow you to do a lot of different things, not just one thing. So I saw law as kind of being a driver's license. The other thing is that I saw older women, older indigenous women, uh, become invisible and disappear. And I, I wanted to keep doing the kind of work that I was doing, which was you know working with communities, working with uh, you know, justice initiatives, doing all different kinds of uh, new and different things. So um, I didn't want to become invisible. I didn't want to be sort of shelved, which is what I saw happening with older women. And law, I mean, it's it's useful. It's a useful field. Um, and so that seemed to me the most um, practical way to go forward. What brought you here? To Victoria? Mm. Or to the school, or let's do both. What brought you to Victoria? Um, when I applied to law school, I applied to more than one place. Well, first of all, um, I applied to go to law school when I was about twenty-one, and I was accepted at that time. And life happened, and I didn't go. Um, and and so. When thinking about law school again, when my daughter was pregnant, I um, I had a friend who was uh, who had started law school here, and he was a grandfather, 
and so so I applied here to UVic. And UVic is a slightly smaller city than other places, and so it seemed like more accessible to me. What compelled you to law? I think law is central to how we make sense of the world. I think that it's central to how we govern ourselves. I think it's central to um, citizenship. I think for indigenous peoples, you know, our ability to be peoples is about our legal orders. You, you can't be a people without law. You can't govern without law. So knowing that uh, indigenous peoples had law, that Gixan people had law, that Cree people had law, uh, so this this was a field. It took a long time to be able to get to a place where indigenous law could be talked about as a real um, a real part of people's lives. You know, so many of the early conversations, you know, had to be arguments that it, that indigenous peoples had law, and we've gone past that. We've gone past those those denial uh, stages. Although there's still those out there who deny that what indigenous how we governed ourselves it was lawful so so i think that the role of law um is critical to our uh, providing safe communities for everybody who's vulnerable and for for families and uh for for kids for women um i, I think that it's essential to um, to dealing with the harms that we've collectively done to our planet. I don't think science alone is going to, information about you know, what we're doing is going to change things. I think there's too big of, big of a disconnect between what we know and what we do. What law enables people to do is to think together, to reason together, to, um, to solve problems problems together you know that's the potential of it that's the promise of it there are of course uh, failures and there are struggles and all manner of disagreements but still people thinking together and reasoning together um, figuring out how to act together that that's what's going to make a difference to our world mm -hmm. what brought you to teaching? So after I articled and I wrote the bar exam, I didn't want to practice law. <laughs> I, I, um, and I had a very good uh, professor, uh, John McLaren, who's now retired here, who, talk, who suggested I, I go to grad school, which I did. And so, you know, he was a part of me getting my doctorate, uh, him along with John Burroughs. And, um, and then, you know, I kept up my membership in the Law Society because I was deathly afraid of having to do the bar exam again. <laughs> <laughs> and I reached a point where I realized that I wasn't practicing, that what I was doing was, was all about teaching. And so I finally let that membership go. Um, and then the, the world of teaching law, there's been a lot of ups and downs. You know, there's 
things that you don't always succeed at it. Not everything works. There are things that don't work. And it's one of those jobs that you have to go back to the next day, even though the day before things didn't work. So, <laughs> and I, I suppose that, um, you know, there's a constant challenge. But, but what I, the teaching, I mean, it's about, it's, it's about the, the learning. Like you can't, I don't think you can effectively teach unless you're learning too. Mm. That it's because teaching and learning are collaborative. And so what I hope is that um, the learning to learn law is what students get and that they can apply it to anything, right? That, that it's a way of thinking, it's a way of inquiry, it's a way of um, sorting and making sense of the world that are really good tools for whatever people want to do. So that's important to me. That's huge. What keeps you here? <laughs> well, there's so much to do, isn't there? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I've got all these projects that I'm working on, uh, that, you know, for, for book projects. And there's the Indigenous Law Research Unit, and we work with communities on things that communities have identified as being important. Um, there's the Indigenous Law Degree Program. It's still the only one of its kind in the world. We're, you know, our students are going to go out, and they're going to be uh, in the world that has never had to students with their kind of legal education before. So these are all new things that we'll continue to learn from. And um, so you know, it, there's, there's, it feels like there's no arrival. Like as soon as we learn something, there's something else to learn. And, and there's more to figure out. And so there's, um, there's just, um, there's, it, it's exciting. Uh, you know, exciting work. I mean, and and also, you know, you know, th just think about academia for for a tiny minute. Like, where else do you get to think and talk about such interesting things? And it's how you make a living, mm. right? It's pretty swell. <laughs> yeah, that is. Who has been the most influential person in your career? And why? Hmm. <laughs> um, you know, I, I, um, I don't know if I can say one person because, you know, all of us are comprised of, we have different aspects to ourselves, right? Different interests, like we all have, we there's multiple aspects to who we are and others uh, touch or connect to you know parts of ourselves in ways that other people don't um, so uh, the most influential in my career um, well there's John Burroughs of course who was my co-supervisor for my graduate work I remember when he first arrived uh, here at Victoria, and I was um, 
I forget what I, I think I was still an articling student. I'm not sure. But anyway, I came running in to talk with him because I really wanted to connect because, you know, this is this amazing international scholar. And I remember blabbing on about some paper or another I was trying to write. And he was so kind. And he said, um, yeah, let me know about that. And I have a paper that I'll share with you. And, I, and it was just so generous, right? It's such a generous um, thing to do, you know, to talk to this complete stranger who just shows up and, and introduces herself. So I think I'd have to name John for sure. Um, I think about other people like Mary Ellen Terpel-Lafond, who uh, is just, you know, like she's out there, right, with all of the the big jobs that she's had as, you know, commissioner for the, for the inquiry into child welfare and the other work that she's done with health and so on. I, I look at people like her and I, you know, I... When I was a law student, uh, she was a judge in Saskatchewan, and I went to her courtroom just to sit in of a courtroom for an Indigenous judge, and I was blown away by how she conducted herself. It was there was a case involving um, young uh, Indigenous like teenage boys who were in trouble, and their mothers were there, and what Mary Ellen did was asked the mothers to talk and she created a space in that courtroom for them to safely talk and to feel that they were heard and they were important so she took that provincial courtroom and she made it a good place for those families for those people and I thought look at that I mean I I um, she wasn't she just refused to be constrained by how things were structured. She saw what needed to be done. She showed those those mothers respect. She didn't talk down to them. She didn't condescend. And and you could see that they would um, they would step up to that. Uh, and they did. So there's Mary Ellen. So I mean there's lots of people like this, right? They're unsung heroes that are out there doing these amazing things. What a beautiful experience. Yeah. Um, <coughs> can you tell us about your projects that you're working on currently? Hmm. Okay. Um, one of them is on uh, Indigenous uh, intellectual property. And this was started last summer. Uh, it was a, I got some money from the Federal um, Cultural Heritage Department. And they were interested in... Um, indigenous intellectual property and I looked at all of the materials the reports and so on that have been going on for about 40 years and pretty well all of them were complaints about the shortcomings of either state or international intellectual property law none of them took the issues and posed them within an indigenous legal order to look at what is indigenous intellectual property you know what's owned, what are the, who are the authoritative decision makers? How are, how how are disputes uh, worked out, and so on. So, so what we did, uh, myself, um, uh, Deborah McKenzie, Rebecca Johnson, uh, and Vernon Wilson, was uh, we wrote a report, and we each had different parts in that, in which we argued that, you know, you have to 
you have to look at the operation of uh, indigenous legal orders in their specificity uh, and in their full scope and depth uh, and look at definitions from within indigenous law and then you can extrapolate from that for how to deal with some of the contemporary issues. And what I learned uh, in that, in thinking about that, was, you know, lots of things within Indigenous law which resemble uh, Canadian intellectual property, you know, whether it's songs or, or uh, oral histories or, or names and so on, like those things that look like, you know, straight up copyright issues, what they actually do in Indigenous society is structure governance. They, the, and they enable, um, you know, the dealing of international relations and debt and, and compensation. And they, so they fulfill all of these other functions within Indigenous societies, which isn't talked about. Uh, and so, so it's creating, you know, arguing for uh, room. And so we're turning that report into a book, like taking the, the work further. And so that's one of them. Another one is um, critical feminist uh, legal studies. And so we have a number of uh, authors uh, from the States and from Canada, and they're all taking up different parts of uh, different questions. And so, for instance, uh, Sarah Deer, who's a tribal court judge, and she's in Kansas, she is looking at and has collected for uh, I don't know how many years, all of the different tribal court uh, laws regarding sexual assault. And so she's, she analyzes those and she's putting together a paper based on, on those issues. As, and it's way more complicated what she's doing, but that's a summary. Um, so, so everybody is, is taking up a, a different question. And they're profound questions that these, that these authors are these women, mainly women, but we also have Darcy Lindbergh, who's doing c critical work with Cree law and gender. So, so there's all of these different conversations which are um, which focus on uh, law, which most of the indigenous feminist materials thus far don't do. So it's going to be a new uh, opening up a new field. And then the 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 other project is is um, all of the, all of us who teach in the uh, the JD JID, our Indigenous Law Degree Program, we're writing about what this experience is and what we're learning. And so, um, so there's, uh, and then we've also invited uh, internationally, like uh, Carwin Jones and names escape me, others uh, to contribute. So Antonio uh, from Peru. Uh, so there's others who will, who have, are finding ways to teach Indigenous law, not in a program like ours, but in various um, law schools and, and other faculties. So that's the, the third one. Um, another project which I just finished was uh, looking at um, uh, the big questions around how do people live together across difference. And mm -hmm. so my community is Cree and we're Soto and we moved into Daniza territories. And so uh, many of the northern Daniza communities are actually Cree and Daniza. 
And the extent to which that is um, a positive experience, it depends. Like it's, it, there are also conflicts. But people are navigating across uh, linguistic orders, across legal orders, inside families and in communities. And, and so uh, that was a big project to look at uh, Daniza law and Cree law and how those are brought together around those questions. Um, I finished a big project looking at um, child welfare, and that report actually is ended up being quoted in a recent Quebec um, decision regarding child uh, protection. Uh, so those are those are some of them. By the way, we're also got a big project here. We're going to build onto the front of this law school. We're going to put a whole new addition for uh, which will house. Uh, JID classrooms and offices and elder space and elders gardens and that's another big project and I have a shovel ready to start construction whenever we get to go ahead. Beautiful, beautiful. Is that in addition to the, um, there had been, I had heard that there was a project to build a new center is well, so what the way this is working is we're going to put this big addition that goes right right around and um, and so there's a physical part of that, of the building, but what we're creating within it is a National Center for Indigenous Laws. So we're going to be hiring someone to help us develop over for a two-year position, someone to develop this uh, National Center. It's based on work we've been doing um, to try it out. We had these, you know, four national conversations on different questions of Indigenous law. One of those was international. And so that whole uh, development uh, is, is something that we're posting for and that we want to have uh, over the next um, couple of years. We're also hiring a, for a two-year position for a communication strategist to help us with an overall profile of the law school um, and you know, that's going to be important uh, for, you know, information about the JID, but it's also important for um, for who we are as a law school. So that's another big project that we're doing. Beautiful. Um, tell us about your artwork. Oh, my artwork. Yes. Um, I haven't painted for a long time. I have a half-finished uh, uh painting right now. It's, it's two ravens, uh, and it's about friendship. So I paint, um, I paint grandmother ravens with little kerchiefs. So I don't, can't see, but my, there's a picture of my grandmother here, and she's wearing a little kerchief. And so the trickster uh, feminist uh, kick-ass ravens that I paint are also wearing little kerchiefs. And uh, so ravens are tricksters for some people, and tricksters uh, for many people have been described as the first law teachers. So the artwork that I do, I think about the ravens in different situations and paint them, and, and they're off, and I use them often in PowerPoints. Um, they've been a good way in some situations to 
uh, open up conversations with young people. We can we can ask questions about the ravens and get their and get them to talk about issues through through talking about the ravens. Um, I like the 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 character of these ravens because they have these bigger than life. Um, kind of personalities that I've also used in writing. So, so the raven, the Cookham ravens, because they are who they are, they can ask hard questions. They can ask about indigenous male privilege. They can ask about, um, you know, the fundamentalist uh, treatment of indigenous law. They can get, ask these questions that are sometimes hard f to to raise because they there are. Disagreements. There's um, there's different ways that um, people struggle with those issues, but the ravens can take them on without any shame or fear, right? Because of who they are. A lot of the students in my cohort for the JID program really love your quote that if Indigenous law couldn't stand up. To the tough questions, maybe uh, I'm. I feel like I'm quoting you wrong. Can you speak about that? Yeah. So, um, you know, there's a want. Um, sometimes people think that in order to make the argument for Indigenous law to be in the world, that it has to be better than Canadian law, mm. and and so <clears throat> I don't happen to think it is. I don't think that there's any perfect legal system or legal order, people have done the best that they can through time, through all of these legal orders. And and so because sometimes people think they have we have to be perfect, there's a there's an idealization of indigenous law. There's sometimes a, a denial that we had violence, that we had sexual violence, that we had wars. Um, and the problem with denying that these um, that these events or that these problems were a part of our society historically, if we deny them, then we don't have the legal resources to deal with them today, and we do have these problems today. And so, uh, so you know, if our indigenous law can't deal with our real lives and solve real problems. I don't think it's law anymore. It becomes, you know, it becomes something else, but it's no, it ceases to be law. And we're not going to, it's going to die. It's not going to be, it's not going to live in the way that law has to live to be useful to people. Thank you. That's so insightful and so purposeful. And it, I know personally and uh, members of my cohort, we've been talking about that and it's shaped a lot of our thought and questions you've just made my day yeah <laughs> I can't tell you how many like ask her about ask her <laughs> yes <Great. laughs> okay we're going to move into section three which are student questions that were submitted via Facebook for our ask the dean interview Question one, how important is neurodiversity to UVic law and what value does neurodiversity add to law schools, the legal profession, 
and society at large? Mm. I think the value that it adds is that it's, it is how our society, uh, like our society includes neurodiversity. However, we, we want to understand that. Usually we don't even see it. We don't appreciate it. But if we can make sure that law schools and legal practice really reflect who we are as a society, um, that will mean it's, it's more inclusive. Like, um, so that little kids who have, uh, can see themselves in the practice of law, or like, so that every little kid, no matter who they are, no matter how they are in the world, that they can see themselves going to law school, that that's a real possibility. And here's the thing, there's different gifts, there's different ways of seeing, there's different ways of thinking, and we don't yet know about all of the possibilities, and we need to learn more. Beautiful. Ah, this is such a good interview. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I love it, okay. Question two, what do you think the timeline will be for meaningful implementation of DRIPA and or Bill C-15 in terms of aligning Canada's laws with UNDRIP? Okay, so two different processes. Um, and one of the things to I think to keep in mind with uh, UNDRIP is that it's, it's a huge umbrella for a lot of different things, and and so um, I don't think I don't think there's necessarily going to be one big accomplishment with it, but rather uh, pieces, uh, both in BC with DRIPA and then federally with with uh, C15. So um, there's <clears throat> there's already some amazing work going on by Indigenous peoples, like Indigenous communities are incredibly pragmatic, right? There's whatever obstacles in the way, okay, we gotta deal with this, we'll do this, right? And so <laughs> so one of the one of the groups um, uh, has has negotiated uh, and I think it's an impact benefit agreement that reflects DRIPA. So they're already moving on it, right? They're already finding ways to to uh, to make things happen as a result of that um, what's been made possible. Now, there's going to be, there's lots more time and work is necessary, not just on the part of uh, Indigenous peoples, but of everybody that's in the in uh, government, no matter what their positions are, because people can get really stuck, and sometimes people don't appreciate that we are all within the relations of power that structure our worlds. And we can play, um, we can perpetuate those relations of power in ways that are oppressive or in ways that create change and that will end the oppression. And so people, first of all, need to see that and then they need to be able to act on it. And I think, um, I think we're, we're, I think we have lots of leaders who are seeing it uh, with, within government and outside government, but there's much more work to be done with everybody else in between. So um, I think, 
I think that we'll continue to see uh, bites of it happening, but not. I don't. I don't foresee a big sort of. I uh, have some big accomplishment with it, um, because I I think we can learn a lot if we can think about it in terms of pilots. Can we pilot something to do with water? Can we pilot something to do with family? Can we? And that makes it manageable. It makes it less scary. People, all people, have to be able to see what's possible. Like so, for instance, like for the, for the Indigenous Law Degree Program, you know, it's. In the, the mention of Indigenous law was really frightening for a lot of people because they didn't know what it was. Um, and, and so, you know, they had all, who knows what they thought, but many different things uh, were uh, in the way. And part of the work that we did through the Indigenous Law Research Unit is we started putting together their reports, like on, on harms and injuries and on lands and, and so other kinds of materials where um, that were uh, indigenous law reports, like different aspects of indigenous law reports, and so we and we had the teaching guides, we had the graphic narratives, we had videos, we did all of these different things to so people could see it as law. And in doing that, we I think we um, it was a big piece of making the JID possible, like all of that work. Uh, which led up to the JID, along with everything else. I mean, there was, you know, continual uh, public legal education and lobbying and everything else that people did, but and it took all of that. And I think if we approach UNDRIP in the same way, like there's, you, you do pieces at a time wherever possible and you keep pushing it and you keep pushing and you just don't give up, that's, um, that's what's going to have to be done. <laughs> Good answer. <laughs> I was like, how the heck is she going <laughs> Like, what do you mean? What is she? <laughs> Very good answer. Okay. <clears throat> number three, the cost of legal services is the number one obstacle to access to justice. What changes should be made to the rules governing the profession and or legal education to reduce the costs of legal services. So, <clears throat> so two things. <laughs> One, uh, this question is uh, what comes to mind in the way that this question is framed, and what is usually the conversation is um, access to Canadian legal services, like legal representation, um, you know, uh, translation services, like all of the different ways that people uh, need to need help in order to to receive the kind of uh, uh, support or benefit or uh, direction from uh, the, the existing Canadian legal system, and all of that is really really important. and And I think that there are big questions to be asked in terms of, um, um, you know, what can be done better than what the way it is now. I mean, we've been talking about, and everybody else too, you know, like there's so much that in in the way of uh, 
um, problems with the legal system that continued despite uh, all of the, you know, the TRC and the, the murdered and missing Indigenous women inquiries. We still have so many people incarcerated. We still have violence against women and girls. And, and so I think that on the one hand, we do need to continue to find ways to support people to, to, so that they can fairly and reasonably be supported and taken care of uh, as they have to be. At the same time, you know, the, the factors in our communities um, that give rise to violence, we have to deal with. And that the only way we're going to be able to do that is through rebuilding Indigenous legal orders so that we rebuild lawfulness. So it's not a matter of creating more services um, only, but rather what else can be done to, to change the kind of situation that, that people find themselves in. Now, lots of that violence against, uh, against Indigenous peoples and against Indigenous women and girls is also from... Um, is, is not from Indigenous people. So that also has to be dealt with. So what I see is that where there are distortions and gaps of Indigenous law, because of colonization, because of all of the things that we know about, and where we see a failure of Canadian law, those create spaces of lawlessness. And in those spaces, it's the vulnerable who suffer it's the women and the kids and the old people and everybody else who who suffers and and then everybody of course suffers as a result of the violence so so there has to be a way for us to start thinking about long-term community citizenry uh, lawful rebuilding uh, while at the same time making sure that people are fairly and adequately taken care of when they are encountering the, the legal system so that's one aspect of, of uh, access to justice. Here's another uh, aspect. We, um, law only happens through institutions. And in the rebuilding of Indigenous law, we are also looking at Indigenous institutions through which law will operate and does operate. And so we need to make sure that access to justice issues within our communities and our legal systems, our legal orders, that there's uh, fairness and inclusion and everything else for, for us too. You know, I, I looked at the work of Sally, the former Sally Engel Mary, and she worked with violence against women and girls all around the world. And what she found was that no matter what country she was in, if the, if the women and girls did not believe that they mattered to the legal institutions in their worlds, to the courts, to the police, to the social workers, to everybody else, if they didn't believe that what mattered to them mattered to those institutions, then they never sought help. Mm. And they, um, they, they didn't recognize themselves as rights bearers, right? So we can see that in Canada, but we have to make sure that when we rebuild Indigenous governance and legal orders and so on, that we don't perpetuate the oppressions, that we don't perpetuate the sexisms and so on. So I think uh, Indigenous human rights from our legal orders, gender, uh, agency, inclusion, these are all 
self-government issues. They have to be built in from the ground up, not added on after. One of the papers that's in the collection of um, the Indigenous uh, feminist collection was about a case where a woman who was uh, violated, who was uh, raped, one of the questions to her was, why didn't she cry out? And what the author is asking is, who would she have cried to, right? We need to think about that. We need to think about um, making sure that, um, that our communities are safe enough that everybody can ask for help when in any situation. So this brings to mind a difference of looking at the word cost. Yeah. What do you think the costs would be or will continue to be if access to justice issues like this aren't dealt with? Indigenous peoples will continue to pay the price and that's that's with our bodies and with our lives. Like that's you know because that's where um, that's the ultimate cost of a system which is not working. Of a system you know like I don't know how, what is it thirty inquiries <laughs> into how it doesn't work. Um, you know, th and this is not to say that there aren't good people doing good things throughout. Okay, but the overall reality is we still have uh, too many Indigenous peoples in jail. If you look at the work of uh, Senator Kim Pate, who's just an amazing advocate for Indigenous women, and you look at any of her research on Indigenous women who are incarcerated, it's, it's horrifying. And, and then, you know, we not only have to ask about what are the conditions which have created these things, but what are the immediate and the long-term kinds of strategies that we can start imagining? And here's the thing. We need to start imagining things being done differently. We need to build a different imaginary for ourselves. And that will, like, people behave in the world that they believe exists, right? It's mm -hmm. about intentionality. It's about not saying that things can't be done. <laughs> it's about taking every opportunity, whether it's a pilot, whether it's a short-term project and you try it out or, you know, like whatever, like on every level, like we need to, we need to uh, continue to act. Because um, if we don't do it, like, nobody's going to do it for us. Mm -hmm. Oh, I have so many more questions <laughs> <laughs> that pop up from that. Mm. There's no arrival. Yeah. No, it's, 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 I mean, part of it is the human condition and how messy we are when we live together. <laughs> part, but also part of it, you know, like we have, you know, the recent um, colonization to, to deal with the, you know, Matt Wildcat says this thing. He's a Dr. Matt Wildcat. He's Cree from uh, Ermanskin. No, Muskogee's. And <clears throat> he, uh, 
he says, we've learned a lot from colonization. Some of it is really wise, and other times we shoot ourselves in the foot. (laughs) (laughs) We have to start becoming aware of when we're shooting ourselves in the foot. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Are there any questions we missed that you would like to include? Mm. So I would encourage the thinking about law and the economy, like so that we think about the economy as part of the context within which law happens. Law is connected and, you know, to, to the economy for sure. But in thinking about the economy that we have, um, what are some ways that we might rethink indigenous economies? Um, the school of um, law and was law and economy or economics is a really strong the school of thought it's a really strong um, influence for how people think about law in the world it's a self-referential sort of very conservative thinking about how the market should make decisions, not governments, and governments should be really small, not providing services, etc. So it's a very neoliberal vision that's in this school of uh, law and economics. Um, and for indigenous peoples, we need our own school of law and economics with indigenous law and indigenous uh, economics. So I would that's a new field, and I really encourage people to, to go there and to think about that along with everything else, of course. What are some of the currencies in that model? Well, I, I think um, I think that it depends on what you, I, how you define wealth. I think that de- defining what wealth is is a step to, um, to thinking about what matters in an economy. I think that uh, you know people have tried different things with different kinds of currencies, so, you know the green economy and trade and so on. Um, I don't know, you know, um, I don't know where that will go, and I don't know if there's mileage in completely ignoring the current, the current currencies. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I I don't know that, but I think we can do a better job of. Um, deciding what shouldn't have a price tag on it, you know, and what collateral damage to the earth is acceptable or not, Um, and that business decisions and economic decisions have to be understood in terms of the real costs. Um, So, you know, I'm not, you know, throwing up my hands and saying, Everything's bad. Um, we have to change it all. But there's definitely some things we have to change. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. What is one takeaway that you would like listeners to walk away carrying from this interview? Mm. I think about the imaginaries. I think. Um, I think if we can be curious together that we can start imagining a future. Like, so, you know, I wrote a a short thing 
imagining um, a conversation 30 years from now between, you know, my now four-year-old and eight-year-old grandsons, and they're both, you know, practice, you know, indigenous law practitioners right, in this future. But I, it's the conversation that they have. Um, and they're talking about feminism. They're talking about kids. They're talking about um, all kinds of things. And so we need to do more of that. We need to, to, um, to be curious, and we need to start thinking about, like, what are your three kids going to be doing, right? What are their kids going to be doing? And what kinds of conversations do you hope they have Right, so, um, so you know, my dad told me when I was a very little girl that I owned my own brain, I owned my own mind, and mm. that I could think whatever I wanted. I did have to be careful in who I told what I thought. Mm. <laughs> very wise. So I would, um, you know, it's a long that line of, of just being more creative than we are. Thank you so much for your time, for your wisdom, and for sharing with us your thoughts and ideas and the projects that you're working on. Those are so exciting. I can't wait to be able to read some of those and to see the physical presence being built up around the law school here. I'm very excited for that. So thank you for everything of who you are, how you carry it, and how you share it in this world. It means so much to everyone that knows you, meets you, and gets to learn from you. Thank you. Thank you for your questions. I love them. They're really thoughtful, made me think. Thank you for your energy. Thank you for doing this. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Star A Indecises. We certainly enjoyed and appreciated the opportunity to connect with Interim Dean Val Napoleon and want to thank her for taking time with us. Cook's Gem, much gratitude and many thanks to all of you for joining us today. Putuk, goodbye and take care. <laughs> <laughs>